So most of you know that I am from Washington State, came all the way over here. It's about 2,300 miles from here in Tip City to, in, uh, to Yakima in Washington State. That's my hometown. And what you might not know about Washington is that it doesn't all look like this. I'm not from Seattle. <laughs> this is a picture of Seattle, and that's Mount Rainier. You can see Mount Rainier from my hometown, um, but this is not where I grew up. There's one more slide. Um, Washington has, I think, four or five, I don't know, um, different climates. So in one state, we have mountainscapes like this and rainforests, you can get to the ocean, and there's also deserts. So the next picture, this is my hometown. Well, not the town. This is about 10 minutes outside of town. I think you can see the river. No, that's a, that's a road. That's a road. You know, there are rivers. There's a, a really big river that runs through Yakima. But this is part of the valley. As you can see, it is not very rainforesty, and Seattle is nowhere in sight. But it's really beautiful. I grew up in the desert. Uh, Sky can attest that I am not even the slightest bit afraid of rattlesnakes. Probably not like wisely so, um, because my cousins and I just grew up tramping through this. That is not the path. I wandered off the path. Very easily could have gotten bitten by a snake. Um, but they were just around. Like we just. We went through the rocks, and if you saw a snake, someone would just be like, hey, there's a rattler by your foot. And you'd be like, oh, all right. <laughs> you just wait for it to go away. Um, Sky's not very happy with me about it. We went hiking last summer, and <laughs> I, w I could hear them in the grass, okay? I could hear that there were rattlesnakes, but I wasn't going to say anything because he's terrified of snakes and would have freaked out. But we rounded a bend, and I was like, there's one on the path. I can hear it. <laughs> and so I just clapped at it and went away. They don't want to be anywhere near you. But uh, Sky doesn't let us go hiking out in the desert anymore. So, <laughs> But all that to say, I spent a lot of time in the desert and forest and just out in the wilderness because my parents really loved camping. And when you are from the Pacific Northwest, hiking is what you do. So I remember that one time my family went camping. And it was somewhere near a river. It was a really pretty little place. And we went with a couple other families. And there was a little girl my age that went with us. And we were, oh, six or seven years old, I don't know. And we were just playing in the woods, as you do on a camping trip when you're seven years old and you get set loose in the woods, you know? You just go and play house with whatever you can find, sticks and trees and bushes and whatever. And we were in our own little world, and at some point we realized we had wandered off and we didn't know where we were. And when you're seven years old, that is like top-notch terror, okay? Like, we were sure that we were going to get eaten by a bear, and we were going to starve out there, be out there for 10 days in the woods, and then die a horrible death, okay? Well, it turns out we were, like, 20 feet from the campground, and so as soon as our parents realized we weren't, you know, coming back, they started just yelling our names, and we were fine. And the whole time we were safe, nothing bad happened to us, dinner was ready when we got back, we didn't starve in the woods but we were really certain that we were going to for a minute there. And this is kind of where we find the Israelites in Exodus 16. We find the Israelites have just escaped captivity from Egypt. It's been a month and 15 days. And they have seen God do these incredible things. They've seen God 
enact all these plagues upon the Egyptian people so that they could escape, and they've seen God part the Red Sea, which is just an incredible picture, right? And then as they're going through the wilderness, they realize they don't have any water, and they come upon a lake, and the water isn't good for drinking, but God makes it clean. So God has done all these miraculous things, helped them out of captivity, and provided clean drinking water. But their supplies are dwindling, and they're starting to get hungry, and so they start to grumble. And they turn to the first people they can find. They turn to Moses and Aaron, their leaders, and they say, you just brought us out here to starve. We know you just dragged us out here to starve us so that we could die in the wilderness. And they accuse them of basically taking the entire whole of Israel out into the desert to starve to death. And (laughs) it's interesting because they grumble to people even though they know that God has provided for them in all these ways. They don't look up and pray. They don't say, God, we're hungry, please give us food. Their first response is to grumble to their leaders. And I think that's a little bit interesting. Their immediate response is to pull out of their worship stance and down into their fighting stance. They had to pull their eyes from heaven down in order to find someone to blame. The second thing that I noticed about this is that they're anticipating starvation. The Bible doesn't say that people were dying of starvation, that they had to kill their livestock to survive. It doesn't say anything about them actually starving. What it says is that they started grumbling because they thought that they would die. They were anticipating a bad thing happening. And so they start grumbling. And it's interesting that they would grumble like this when they've already seen what God can do. And so when you look at this, you're like, man, what idiots are the Israelites? Like, really? You see all of these incredible things happen. Like, amazing, undeniably big God moments. And you're going to grumble and worry that you're going to starve in the wilderness? And I think that it's funny that that's the first reaction that I had was, man, what idiots. Throughout the whole Testament, this is the whole story of the Old Testament, is the Israelites are provided for by God, they wait a while, they do their own thing, and God comes back and fixes them, puts them to rights, right? And I just think over and over again, man, stupid Israelites. But then I remember that it's so easy for us to come to church on Sunday, to raise our hands in worship, to lift our eyes to heaven, and then to go back to our jobs on Monday, back to our kids or our husbands or wives or whatever, and to pull our hands back into a controlling stance, to try to control the way that someone treats us, to try to control the way that things go at work, to try to control, control, control. And then I realized that we're really not that different than the Israelites. And yet, we see in verses 4 and 5 that God's response is a loving one. He says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. 
And this is so that they could have enough for the Sabbath. So on the sixth day, they would gather enough for two days so that on the Sabbath, they could rest. So Moses tells the people of God's coming provision. And in verses 9 through 11, it says this. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he's heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God. So three things happen here. The first is that Moses tells the people that provision is coming. He lets them know it's coming. Moses is their, imagine that he's, he's their leader of like their tribe, if you will, but he's also their prophet. He's also the one that goes to God and hears from God and then tells them what's going to happen. So he's their pastor, for lack of a better word, okay? And he goes to them and he says, it's coming. You can stop your grumbling. God heard you, okay? The second thing is this. God shows his glory and promises to provide. So there's a show of glory, and I imagine that there is no way on earth that God appeared and showed his glory in a cloud and there wasn't a worship service, okay? So we've got this picture of the Israelites. The Bible doesn't say this. I know I'm just supposing, but I just can't imagine that the glory of God appears in this room and people don't raise their hands in worship, okay? And God promises to provide. And then he asks them to wait until that evening when he does provide through the quail and in the morning through the manna. And I can imagine that the Israelites who've been grumbling and who've been so distrusting to this point probably aren't very happy with the process because the process wasn't in their control. Moses tells them the provision is coming, and I'm sure they're, you know, they're already angry with Moses, all right? They think he dragged them out here to starve, and I'm sure they're saying, yeah, okay, sure. We'll believe it when we see it. And then the glory of God appears, and I think they were probably pretty humbled, going, oh, hi, we've been grumbling, um, but praise God, okay? And God promises, but he tells them to wait. His response is loving, but he says, it's going to be in my timing, and there's a test, too, because you have to do it my way when the provision comes. So then the provision does come. And as the story continues, it becomes apparent that even seeing the glory of God is not enough for the Israelite people to truly trust in him and in his process. The Bible says this. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. God's provided for these people countless times. And still, when he provides for them and he says, I'm going to provide for you day after day after day, and there's a process, they say, no, we're going to try it our way. And they hoard the food, only to find out that in the morning... It's inedible anyway. And it's really, really easy to look at this story just like I looked at the first part of the story and to say, man, idiots, like you just saw the glory of God in a cloud for goodness sake. You can't trust that he's going to provide day after day. And as I was writing this sermon, I continued to think that time and time again, stupid, stupid Israelites 
And I think God said to me, wait a minute. Have you never worried about your income or the bills and how you're going to pay them? Have we not as a church ever assumed that a political leader is going to be the end-all be-all of our country and of our lives? Do we not look at our issues and pull our hands back from worship in order to control the things around us? And have we never claimed that something won't change or that healing isn't possible? Have we never grumbled in anticipation of a bad thing? And I realize that we grumble just like the Israelites did and that God has provided time and time again and we still grumble. I still grumble. We hoard our time, we hoard our energy, we hoard our money, and we pull everything in, we hoard our relationships, we try to control them, we try to control our social lives and our family and our money, and we realize that when we try to control them, often we find that they're full of maggots. They're full of stress, anxiety, heartbreak, dissatisfaction, And this story is showing us that we are, we're extremely flawed and that humanity is broken and really not very good at trusting God. But it's teaching us something else as well. And there is hope in this story. And so reading the first part of that chapter, I'm going, oh, I'm being called out. But the last part of the chapter is full of hope for us. When the Israelites grumbled, God's response was loving. He said, I've heard the grumbling of my people, and I will provide, and he does. He sends quail. And this is my favorite part. This is the coolest thing I found out this week. I was reading some commentaries and doing some research, and I found out that this quail, in and of itself, really not that special, okay? It's a desert bird, and throughout the day, it flies around, and it gets its food, and then in the evening, it's really tired, so it's really sluggish and easy to catch. So God didn't make the people work very hard to get their food. He told them they had to go out and gather, but the birds weren't hard to catch, okay? But here's the thing that's cool. The quails were an Egyptian delicacy. So in giving them this specific bird, the specific meat, God is saying, remember where I brought you from? Remember when you were in captivity? Remember when you were with a people that gave you the scraps? You may have had plenty to eat in Egypt, but you never had the delicacies. Where I've brought you from is a symbol of my faithfulness. And now I'm showing you that this is better. I'm providing for you and this is better. Wandering through the desert may not be fun, but it is better and I'm taking you somewhere. So then we have the manna in the morning. And the manna, manna literally means, what is this? (laughs) They had no clue what it was. That is what the word manna means. They had no clue what in the world these little flakes were. I like to think that they were like frosted flakes. Like, that's, I think that that frosted flakes are manna. That's God's food. And they gathered it, and it says that it tasted like honey. And I think that this is the most beautiful thing, because once I found out that the quail was an Egyptian delicacy and that meant something, I was like, oh boy, what does the manna mean? The manna was a representation of where God was taking them. God had promised that he was taking them to a land flowing with milk and honey. So he said through this quail, remember where I brought you from. 
Remember how I've broken your chains and set you free from captivity. And look, here's a reminder of where I'm taking you. I'm taking you to a land that is sweet and that is good. I'm giving you good things now as a reminder of where you've been and telling you to have faith in where I'm taking you. So this week, I was just so challenged to step back and say, wow, where have I been? What are the reminders of where I've been? And what are the reminders of where God is taking me? What are the promises that God is showing me? When I first got my call to ministry, I tried to look everywhere but music. I didn't want to be up here. I'm sorry to tell it to you, but I didn't. This is not what I always wanted to do. I was really, really angry <laughs> when God gave me that call because I didn't think I was good enough. And when I first started, I really, really pushed against that call because it was hard. And I grumbled. I grumbled and I grumbled and I grumbled. I grumbled when somebody tried to get me kicked off of the worship team because of drama. I grumbled when I went to college, and I knew at that point that my call was what it was, and I was pursuing it, but now I'm in college, and I want to control it, okay? And I tried out for these different worship teams, and God was saying, not yet, and I didn't make it on those worship teams. And then last year, when I finally made my dream worship team, a pandemic canceled it. And each time I thought, man, it didn't go my way, and I don't understand why it didn't go my way, and I was so angry and I grumbled. But then I saw the fruitfulness of where God has brought me from. I mean, just now, I mean, it's just coming to me in those situations. I got to pursue a call. I got to go to NNU, and I had friends that I never would have met, and I got to lead in a church where I got valuable skills that I use now. I spent more time at the church as an intern because I didn't have other worship teams to spend my time on. And heck, I made it on that worship team and I didn't get to travel, but I got a husband. Look at him. <laughs> I just like, I looked over there and I just feel so, so blessed because in each of those moments I grumbled and I said, God, why aren't you providing? And his response was, I am. Look at what I've provided for you. Remember where I brought you from and have faith in where I'm taking you. So whatever it is that you're facing, and you're, if you're wandering through the desert, and it, maybe that's a waiting period, maybe it's a struggle, and you don't know how you're going to overcome that struggle, whatever it is, look for those reminders. Look for the quail, the quail that says, look, when you came to me, you were broken. You were chained. You were a captive to the things of this world, and I set you free. Look at the ways that I've helped you to grow. And look for the manna. Look for the promises of God that say, I'm taking you somewhere better because I know that they're there. God is preparing you for something better, and maybe you're not ready. Or maybe that's just not the thing. And instead of a traveling worship band, you're going to get a husband. I don't know. <laughs> I just I believe that today the message is so clear. Remember Remember the good, where I've brought you from, and have faith in where I'm taking you. 
I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I'm going to pray. But I just want to say one more thing. If, if you need prayer, if you are struggling and you've, you haven't met Jesus yet, you don't know him as your personal Savior, and you want to start that journey, if you want to be offered those offerings of quail and manna, if you want those promises, they're, they're open to you. God loves you just as much he loves any one of us. So if you don't know how to start, please come talk to me or talk to Richie or Doug or just the person sitting next to you. It doesn't matter. Um, But we want you to be able to know the God that breaks chains and the God that cares for his children, the God that always provides in every situation. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for the times when it seemed like you were shutting doors, but really you were opening them. You were just opening different ones, and I didn't see it at the time, but you were providing, and you were so good. I pray for the people in this room that if there was heartbreak, I pray that you bring comfort and peace, that you would show them the ways in which you're providing, show them that you still have a plan, that there is a purpose for them. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Your plans for us are good, and I believe that with everything in me. I believe that every single person in this room is being shaped and molded by you, and I just pray that they would be able to see your fingerprints in everything, that they would be able to remain faithful and courageous in their walk. We love you and we praise you. It's in your mighty name we pray.